This episode is sponsored by ReCut. So I almost just did a big time no-no and didn't start the backup audio. Hey, welcome to the Upload Iceberg. If the upload is the content you can see above the water as the viewer, I'll cover the journey and data behind growing a YouTube channel that you can't see in the murky depths below the surface. I'm Dan, this is episode six, recorded after hitting 3,000 subscribers on September 8th, 2023. Take a little look at the subscriber chart. Zoom out a little bit. September 8th, hitting 3001. Today is October 24th, still in glorious Colorado, and we're doing some batch recording today. I just got done with episode five, and before that, I recorded a roll for the 24 versus 35 comparison video. And let me tell you something about episode five of this podcast. I record my screen in OBS. I've got my mic running into OBS and into my backup roadcaster. The thing about episode five is the screen recording in OBS is frozen on my notes. So I'm a little hot right now. What we're gonna have to do is go back in that episode when editing and re-screen capture all of the analytics screens that I overlay over top when I'm going through them. So I'm really excited about that. And I want you to be really excited about it. If you're just jumping into the pod, I do an episode every 100 subscriber milestone at this point in the channel journey when we record episode seven for 3,100 subscribers. That'll bring us up to real time. We won't be doing any more of the the batch drop episode recordings. Um, So if you hate these and you're listening anyway, don't worry, they'll slow down a little bit. Before we dive in, because he's really good at it, let's let episode four Dan tell you about why I'm loving ReCut, the sponsor of today's episode. I talked about ReCut in episode three around affiliate marketing, but since I found ReCut, I've used it on all of my projects since. It's an automatic video editor tool that removes the silence based on parameters that you can dial in. And it's just been one of those no-brainer products for me. We can open our A-roll track, our OBS screen record and good audio. We can line up the waveforms and export a cut video file or XML to nicely bring all of the cuts into Premiere or our favorite editor. It quickly cleans up A-roll for my lens reviews and it eliminates pauses here on this podcast so that the audio track is more listenable. It's simple, powerful, a one-time payment, and the trial is a fully featured trial to experiment with five exports. If you edit video and you spend any time cutting out silence, I think it's worth at least a try. And if it works for you, you can use my affiliate link in the description for $10 off. And I've already been in ReCut two times today. As I've batch recorded, I've dumped cards, swapped batteries, done a little ReCut export. So I've run ReCut on the 24, or excuse me, the 28 to 35 millimeter review video. I've already run that on episode five of this podcast. Still working really well, give it a try. Today's title, a little bit unknown, something about photo editing. I wanna hit on Lightroom, the lens blur, early access. We'll look at some denoise AI examples. We'll look at the Photoshop generative fill um, that was in beta and now is in Photoshop 2024 proper as uh, some of these updates have been rolling out. So I wanna look at that and just kind of talk about some of the AI tools and general approach that I take toward editing photos because I think this is gonna be something that's important for people to kind of, I don't know, you don't need to throw your stance out there, but I think for me, it's important for you to understand the level of manipulation that I use on any given photo. And I think this will become more important across all types of content in society as AI starts to fly off the rails here. Uh, so I don't know what to do for the contrived thumbnail. Uh, maybe we'll we'll point aggressively to the computer here and put a 
Lightroom and Photoshop icon right here or something stupid like that. And uh, we'll hope for some clicks. The 28 day milestone period for this time is August 12th through September 8th. So I have that pulled up here. I'm gonna get into the rhythm of giving ourselves the benchmark. So we've got the 28 day period leading up to the milestone here, August 12th through September 8th. And we can compare that to our live current 28 day period, which to be honest is running a little hot. 1500 views in the last 48 hours seems to be a little bit above normal for now. Um, so maybe that's picking up for some reason, not sure why. This is the milestone period. And you know, very quickly, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, episode five, just recorded it an hour ago. I want to kind of get to some benchmark metrics for the data so that we can talk about this a little bit more easily. I know it's really overwhelming to jump into somebody else's YouTube studio based on personal experience and kind of nothing really lines up with what you might be used to given, you know, if you're on YouTube, what your YouTube studio looks like. So we'll do a little bit better job of trying to relate some of those metrics as we cover the uh, analytics in this episode. So we'll hit analytics quickly and then we'll jump into some Lightroom and Photoshop live R recorded, recorded, not live videos for this time period. Finally talked about it in almost probably every episode. Finally got the 28 pancake and the R8 combo review out, um, push this out of the start of the milestone period. Uh, we looked at analytics. If you're interested to see how that's doing nowadays, you know, watch episode five and I'll include the analytics, which again, I'll have to re-record because of OBS analytics will be there. And then we also a little bit of a caching issue here with this thumbnail preview. Um, but finally got the first episode of this show published in this milestone period as well. End of August, which is pretty cool. And that felt good. Scary, but good. Um, feels like we're rolling now, right? Uh, what else? Okay, so let's pull out, if we look at the analytics from this time period, let's pull out some things that we can start to, you know, some of those metrics that I think we can start to, like local metrics that I think I can say that I want to strive to and that make it a little bit easier to communicate how we're doing in the short term. And uh, moving a little quick today because I've got 45 minutes left on this memory card and I won't swap them. I just won't do it. So we'll have a little bit of a shorter episode. I think five went long, so this will be good to mix in. All right, so one of the things that I talked about before was trying to get to that, like, I don't know, nice round 28,000 views in a 28-day period. So if we use that as one of our metrics, you know, we can see from the 3,000 subscriber milestone period and now, you know, pretty flat across the board. You know, we're getting a little spike here on the release of the 100 to 400 and we're getting a spike from the release of the 20 millimeter pancake, but generally kind of flat. That's how my channel is just generally kind of flat. And that's a symptom of being heavily search based. And so, so if I want to get to that 28,000 views in a 28 day period, obviously I could, um, upload more videos that might help, but we can conceptualize this 19,000 number a lot easier. If we just say this rounds up to about, I don't know, 700 views a day. So I think that's one of the metrics that we can start to pin down as like quickly communicating where we are in any given period. Um, right now doing about 700 views a day, as opposed to that 1000 that I think we want to you know, strive for as the metric that's easily communicatable in this time period. Um, so shooting for that thousand at 700 right now. And then obviously, like if you look at some of these other metrics, like clearly let's just set 1000 as a watch hour threshold in this 28 day period would be good to hit, would be good to see, you know, inching closer to that 100 subscribers regularly every 28 day period. Right now we bounce between, I don't know, 50 and 80. It's a little bit silly to toss out like a revenue target for that 28 day period as it's going to be based on a lot of different things. 
but mainly on the views, right? So whatever a thousand views a day ends up being revenue based on whoever's advertising and what the rates they're paying, you know, it'll be, it'll be what it is, but it would be cool to see that hit like 50, let's say as the next round milestone there. So that's where we're at. If we want to get a little bit deeper into like making that $40 over the period, like a little bit more tangible, um, you know, I did the math on this earlier. We can say that's an average of one, $1.46 a day. So we can use like the day rate is something that we can use to easily communicate, round that up to, let's say the nearest quarter. So doing 150 a day, and you can see we kind of have a lot of variability here. A high day of $3.28, a low day of, you know, 87 cents. It looks like, yeah, 87 cents for the low day. So some variability there. I think if we say $1.50 a day, that's that's a good, just like a shareable metric. And like would want to point out that I don't consider... And I wouldn't call this passive income. A lot of work goes in this channel that's anything but passive. I also routinely check comments just about daily and respond. So when we think about true passive income, if I were to you know log out of this account, not upload any videos, not respond to any comments for the next year, certainly there would be some long tail revenue. Probably because of how searchable my channel is, probably pretty similar to like the revenue that I've done for instance, in the trailing 365 days. That I would call passive. If I quit, whatever AdSense checks still come in after I do literally nothing, I would be comfortable calling that like purely passive income. So I'm not gonna call our passive income metric $1.50. We'll just call that like the AdSense coming in. And uh, yeah, the other thing I have noted here is I don't pay a lot of attention to click-through rate period to period, but this does vary by a full percentage point. Click-through rate has fallen a full percentage in this period where average view duration, AVD, is just about the same. I'm seeing a lot more impressions recently, and I think that's where you know, I mentioned that 1,500 views in the 48-hour period is kind of popping. Maybe that's where we're getting that from. And if we want to look at maybe why the click-through rate has taken a percentage dive, again, I'm not tracking or worried about that too much on a period-to-period basis. It's probably because this 5.5 is, is low from the recent 100-400 review. So that's what I would suspect there. Let's see. I think that's big hits for the analytics. Got about 30 minutes left on this memory card. So let's just let's just take a little bit of a let's just take a little bit of a gander. Let's just do a little bit of a wing it in Lightroom situation. So I've got my Lightroom catalog for this year's Colorado trip so far. Got about a hundred flagged. Um things I want to touch on here. Yeah, I mean, this is the bulk of the episode. I want to touch on lens blur, early access lens blur here. Uh, we can pop open another catalog previously and look at some of the the denoise AI, and we can open some stuff in Photoshop and use the generative fill, uh, maybe some of the traditional healing and, and stamping tools. I just want to get a better idea of what what everybody else is using on their photos, what you've tried, what you think is creepy, or like <laughs> where the where the line is that you don't want to cross yourself. Because for me, and this is really what I want to communicate in this episode. I am trying to embrace these things as heavily as I can, I think, at this point. And partly from just a learning standpoint, I want to see what we're capable of in terms of, you know, the full native Adobe suite at this at this point with some of these tools. It's also one of the few windows that I have in my day-to-day life to interact with AI in a real, like, meaningful way. For a couple months, I was paying for GPT right after it switched from 3.5 and just trying to force myself to use that in a real helpful way. Kind of like, I don't know, forcing function. If I can't 
get $20 a month value out of this tool. Like, why do I still have it? And I don't have a, an active subscription now for that reason. Like I just couldn't, couldn't figure out enough uses uh, with GPT for, you know, to pull into my daily life and, and monetize to the point to make that back. Even I'm just not doing, doing that much on the visual side, things like generative fill and, you know, potentially this blur function in the future as it, as it gets refined, certainly like the, the new denoise AI assist or whatever they're calling it in here, I've used uh, pretty heavily, particularly with the RF 100 to 400. So a long way to say, this is the way that I interact with AI along with a few of the, the podcasting tools. And I think my general, I mean, we can look at a few images here. I typically like, have no qualms about misrepresenting reality as it as I saw it. I've said this before and it probably makes sense to reiterate, but you know, I'm really looking at photography as a way to primarily preserve my own memories of my own trips and kind of everything after that is secondary. And so when we start getting into things like content aware fill and generative fill, and even just like approaching photos with like a heavy dose of healing and clone stamping, I don't have any qualms about that whatsoever. Like I totally understand and can imagine there are like definitely lines that you wouldn't want to cross, particularly journalistically for uses like that at events. But in my mind, for the stuff that I'm shooting, I'll pretty much do whatever I want <laughs> to get rid of distractions and just kind of preserve a capture. So like, you know, obviously there's a massive continuum. There's people that are using this stuff to pull in fake everything. And there's people that won't touch it and are like upset this exists. It's going to, it's going to meet in the middle, I think for much of society. And I think there are, there are a lot of tools that I think are missing. Like any technology getting rolled out, we're going to see a wide continuum of what people think about it and how people embrace it. And so at the start of that curve, we're going to see people using these things extremely heavily, um, you know, not wanting to necessarily represent reality. And that's in my mind, totally cool. Um, you know, bringing in objects that weren't in photos, things like that. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you're going to have people that look at this saying like photography is dying. It's ruined. How do we know what's true? What's fake? You know, some valid concerns, but I think most people are going to fall in the middle. And I think I'm a little bit here at the moment, particularly because some of these things like generative fill, it doesn't really replace a function. Like you could always content aware fill. You could always clone stamp and heal things pretty intensely out of images. And if you're online scrolling and you're not familiar with a photographer, you really have no idea of what's been done unless they're kind of like beating you over the head with their, I don't know, their opinions or their approach on this. And this is sort of what I'm trying to do here right now in this episode is say like from the very beginning of this stuff being rolled out, telling you like I'm embracing it fully. If you're seeing images in my videos, I'm trying to give you that before after swipe, you know, not in all of them, but probably in 25% of them, I either hit with some form of healing, clone stamping, generative fill, denoise AI, or potentially in the future, this lens blur beta. And it's not to say that that's going to be drastic in any one of those 25%. Um, some of them it will be. Some of them, there will be some extensive work done in those tools. For the RF 100 to 400 video, I used the denoise AI considerably on a lot of those images, especially ones shot at ISO 8000 and above. I just want to kind of get out in front of this phenomenon and be very transparent and forward about how I'm using these things. And I think over time, we're going to end up with a lot of powerful tools that allow us to dig into the metadata or the audit trail of any particular image. You're going to be able to click and see what was done to what extent. I think that'll be super helpful. You know, we'll see that in all sorts of content, particularly 
Um, news is going to be a huge uh, realm where we need to be able to see an audit trail of things like that. Certainly video, and as video relates to news, we'll want to combat things like misinformation, deep fakes, identify it so that everybody's on the same page when they're viewing it. Um, I think Adobe, I mean, I'm sure a couple companies are working on things like this, but I think Adobe is, or Adobe adjacent is working on kind of like a, a standardization form of this within the Adobe products, which is interesting. I have to look more into that. However, we can walk through some examples and just see some of the things. And I'd be really interested if like some of the things that I'm doing here make you in particular cringe, or if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're going really much harder core than me on some of these changes, I'd love to hear about it. But I'm doing things like this is not necessarily generative fill at all. I think I did use it on this image um, in Photoshop, pulled it into Photoshop, but I'm just like cleaning up some of these distractions and making the subject extremely clear. This is typically something that I would and have and will continue to do. And I don't see, I don't see any issue with this. I give you my before and after, you know, I'm taking a canvas and then I'm painting over top of it. That's how I think about it. And that's, you know, I think I like being in Photoshop and Lightroom editing more than I even like taking pictures. And so, you know, that's just how it's going to be over here for me. And I want to let people know in this shot, you know, using generative AI pretty heavily, not in a large area. So like a, we're zoomed into 200% here, very tiny area of this photo altogether, but using generative AI in Photoshop to just pull this image in there and, you know, lasso some cars and pretty quickly just transforming this from, oh, you're on the road with cars to open road ahead, you know, possibilities are endless. It changes the feel, I think, of the image, which is interesting. I think this is what people are going to, you know, this is what we'll talk about. But this is not, in my mind, this is not crazy, right? You probably scroll past a million instances of this type of edit on social media every day. Maybe, did I say a million? Maybe thousands. Did I say a thousand? Maybe hundreds. Uh, but that's like the type of thing that I'm using these tools for. And to be able to use generative AI to do something like this edit is just much, much faster and more accurate than using traditional clone stamping and healing brushes and content-aware fill. The generative fill is just fast and pretty accurate, and they give you three options, and you don't need to prompt anything. When you're just trying to make things disappear, I'm not giving any prompts. I know nothing about writing good prompts for this stuff yet. Just really effective, like a content-aware fill plus plus is kind of how I'm using, thinking about it, and how it's working. Let me try to find another example here where I've used this and had some interesting results. Uh, I have an idea in mind. Here we go. This photo. We've got, you know, we've got a spare leg here that I wouldn't typically want. And uh, removing this with clone stamping or healing uh, with my level of Photoshop skill is not going to be possible. And so this is something that I ran through generative AI in Photoshop with some really interesting results. One thing that it does, there's a couple things, right? So it recreates one face of this box of goldfish in where it couldn't see at all what was here. And it's bringing in what it thinks is some form of the word cheddar. You can see when we're in 200%, you know, we don't have any resolution here. We don't know what these words say, but it's taken a best guess to complete this as a box. It's taken a guess at what the, you know, front face packaging of this item is, even without have, like it knows there's some orange here and some white and it's trying to fill in the gaps there. And from a distance, you're not really looking at this. You don't know what the front of a goldfish box looks like. If you're scrolling through social media, 
I think this passes. It's also doing some other interesting things. There's a rock here now in place of this foot. Doesn't really match these other rocks. These are sharper. The faces are more rough. This is pretty smooth, pretty low res. And if we look at where our focus point is, you know, we should have a little bit more on the edges of this rock. And then you can see where there's a stark difference in resolution change right here between this half of the rock and the AI generated part. What's also interesting is we have this, we've got some other plastic bag with us here today. That's pretty clear 200% here. When we go to the fill, you know, it's using this rock to extend over it and clean it all up. And it's not really worried about what was there before and it still looks okay. And I think this rock face looks okay. You have a little bit of a darker spot here, but we have patterns like that in the, the part of the photograph above where we have some data. And so I think we're also keeping this this rock face pretty defined. I think if you scroll this on social media, you don't know. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think if you look at this, there's no clue. I don't think there's anybody harmed in the AI generative fill conducted here, but I think it's certainly, if I'm going to use or post this type of photograph, I don't want this, I don't want this leg here, you know? And I'm just shooting candids on a day like this. Obviously you could say, oh, you could reframe, you could move around, get a different shot, get a different angle ask this fine fellow to move his leg, I'm just going to clean it up. I don't have much more to say around gener generative fill other than um, it takes some time to use. I guess I have one more example. So on the way out here, I made this drive from PA to Colorado in about three days, stopped for a day or a night in Indianapolis. I think this was outside that hotel, if I remember correctly. Um, so do doing a couple, I don't know, I was tired from driving all day, had nothing to do, wanted to make a composite popped open the hotel window and just, uh, you know, in one of these images, we're using a 10 stop ND to get some sky. This is the final. So we're using that 10 stop ND sky from one of these images here. We're grabbing the birds from this frame. And then, you know, we're, we're masking out because I have a couple different frames to choose from. We're masking out any distractions. And then if we go back and forth, you can see I've really kind of AI generative filled some of these like window smears in the foreground. You know, you can see some uh, water running down the window here. And then I'm going to take out, you know, some of these street lamps, some of the distractions in the background, and really clean up this water area here with generative fill. Um, it's like a good amount of clone stamping going around in this area. And this is like an obvious composite, right? We've got a, a 10 stop sky with... Um, you know, frozen bird flight and in a car moving. And this car looks shoddily pasted in to begin with. Um, I don't know, just a fun little exercise I was doing, but kind of used all the things. And that's just how I view generative AI right now. And that's typically one of the ways I'll use it. Now, if we go, let's look at some of the early access lens blur, because I think that's a really interesting tool as well. I think I used it on this image here. So let's see, we don't have it on this version and we do have it on this. Actually, let's skip this image. So let's look at an image. Oh, another area where I've used the generative fill is in, uh, this is where people maybe start to not love generative fill or image manipulation. We've got a whole bunch of crash mats here. I'm running a time-lapse on the other camera, you know, <laughs> Photoshopping out um, bouldering pads when you're taking a picture of someone bouldering. Mm, maybe that's debatable. Maybe you say, maybe you'll leave those in the picture to kind of show everybody that that's the safe way to boulder outdoors. I said, let me yank those out of there with generative fill. And, you know, I could have gone after that one. Could have gone greasily after that mat too and really made it look unsafe. I left that in. 
because that's what ran through my head when I was erasing those. That's an idea, like that's an example of one of the actual considerations that you might want to take into account, right? Am I removing things that make the action depicted in this photo seem more unsafe? In this case, yeah, I am. And so, <laughs> I don't know. Do I have any obligation to leave that in there? Tough to say, tough to say. All right, let's see. Let's see where we can get some of this lens blur action going on. So if we look into one of these examples, let's take this example here. One of the lenses I was shooting, so we got before, after. One of the lenses I was shooting on this day was the 85, Samyang 85-1.4. I like shooting um, some landscape with that. I don't know. I don't know. I just kind of like that out of focus foreground and background. And as long as you have a focus point, you know, shooting wide open 85 is an interesting thing to, to bring out on a day like this, in my opinion, especially if you've got some nice, strong people subjects. In this case, we can take a look at what the early access lens blur does. So this is, this is kind of best case scenario in terms of separating your subject from your background, right? We've got a decently long focal length. We're blasting wide open at very wide aperture. We've got our subject um, pretty close to us. I think, what's the crop on this? Yeah, this is, you know, we're framing this four by five, but this is not cropping it at all. This is kind of the frame. So I'm pretty close to the subject and the background is forever away. And that's why we have this deep, creamy mountain and reservoir in the back. And you could say, this is a contrived example, because you could say, that's great. You've separated your subject from the background thoroughly. You don't need any more, but we could. We could apply this lens blur. And one thing, like kind of a common theme across all these tools is they seem to take a good amount of processing and time in Lightroom and Photoshop for me. And I'm running an M2 Max with 32 gigs of RAM. So I, don't, I wouldn't say concerning, but in terms of looking at your workflow, uh, this is not the kind, like these, any of these features are not the kind of thing that I'm using for every single photo. Hence why I'm only using them across 25, maybe 35% of photos in general. So looking at this early access feature, the cool thing is we're gonna get a visual depth map here. And we're gonna see the in-focus foreground elements in yellow and then everything out of focus, in this case, our background in these purples. We can adjust this and play around with the map and see how that affects things. Undo because this mask is pretty, or this map is pretty good um, to start off with. And if we unvisualize that, we can see we've already applied 50% of the blur amount and we can toggle this to see what that looks like. So off, on, off, on. I'm trying to see, you know, if it's me, how much is this overdone or not? This looks fine. Like I would like, I think this actually, I probably wouldn't know. I think it looks fine. Some of the things you're getting though, I think a little bit of like this double skin around the top of the tree line on this mountain. And then, you know, we're very clearly missing a small chunk of this rock here as we toggle, which starts to break the illusion. Um, we're also losing a little bit of this rock face. And then I suspect we're losing some on the hair. Big time, big time. But if we're scrolling on social media, probably not at all. So let's crank this to a hundred. You can see how long kind of that lag is. For context, I am also running OBS, but trust me, when I'm not running OBS, this is still kind of running at this speed. So fully cranked, I don't know. Again, I think if you're scrolling, you probably don't even know. But what we have here, it's like a pretty decent mask because we have such a good foreground background separation straight out of camera, given the lens. What we can do, and I think this is what's cool, and maybe you can do this on the iPhone, but it's probably a pain if you can. We're allowed, or we're given access to paint in these focused and blurred areas. Uh, I think there's masking, auto masking on this pen, but it's lagging. Um, so we can paint some of that in back again. Whoop, 
trying to move the photo and we're slowing down big time. Paint a little bit of this guy. So we've got some downsides. Performance is one of them. Let's see anything else we might have missed? These are kind of out of focus from the foreground perspective. You know, it's probably happening in here. I think let's do, this is where trying the hair gets tricky. I think if you toggle that off, you toggle that on, check your blur. Like you're not gonna, you're just not gonna catch those wisps. So I think you call it. And if you were gonna apply that blur and say like, oh, this image needed the blur, I think this can pass. You know, I don't think there's, I don't think you apply this on this photo personally. I think this is fine, but you can see how you start to approximate what looks a little bit like the 85, Canon's 85 defocus smoothing. You know, obviously you have the ability to get deep blur in your background with just this lens, but you can see, I wouldn't call this messy by any sense of the word, but you, it has edges. Like these out of focus areas have more defined edges. And I think even just applying a little bit of this blur, half strength, you clean up the mask. And I think you just, you smooth out some of those edges in the out of focus areas. And it starts to approximate a little bit of the defocus smoothing effect in my mind. Again, probably not going to use it on an image like this. This is a contrived example, uh, but certainly interesting. Now, got about seven minutes left on this memory card. So I think the other thing that I want to just kind of jump in and cover, or let me see maybe one more example about how I would use this. Back to generative fill, pull this into Photoshop, lasso this branch on the lower half. I kind of you know made the decision to like super tightly crop, shoot between these trees, knowing that I was going to crop in the field cropping in, trying to get that like just out of focus framing element here again, 8514. But you know, there's only so much distraction you need. So I circled that branch here and generative filled that the hell out of there. That's kind of the way that I would use this again, another example. And you can kind of see the edge here if you're jumping in at 200%, but you have to remember that you are the only person jumping into your images at 200% in Lightroom. And you can, I'm going to use the phrase get away with, you can get away with a lot. Not that it's criminal activity. That's what I'm here saying. I, I don't think this is criminal. You let me know if so. Let's ditch this catalog real quick. I'm going to pop open. I just want to find something with the AI denoise. So you can get an idea of what that looks like. Let's pop open maybe this guy. And again, this is an episode. If you haven't commented on any of these before, but you have been lurking around for the last five podcast episodes, this is one where I'd love your thoughts, kind of where you where you lie on that spectrum of all in, using using the generative fill to bring in crazy objects that weren't in the scene at all to using it to remove distractions and just quickening up the workflow as opposed to clone stamping. And then are you a solid swear off this kind of stuff because it feels greasy? So a couple examples here. We'll look at, I think this was something I used in the 100 to 400 just to kind of illustrate you, even at F8, 400 millimeters, like you've got a lot of kind of distracting elements here that ideally if you were doing wildlife or particularly bird photography, like a little bit wider of an aperture to make those really disappear. Um, but if we zoom in here, this is the image that has not had AI denoise applied to it. And then let's just come right on the tip of the uh, flower here. And then this one have applied some, but not that much. You can see like still good amount of noise here, uh, but just like much more refined. I think I just took the edge off in a photo like this. One thing that we can do right now is just run it live. Let's try to find maybe a more concrete example. So I think this is a better example. We can see kind of on this image coming from ISO 8000, you can see some noise. Again, 200%, I'm the only person doing this. Um, but you can see some noise. And I think when we get to wanting to, you know, with this lens in particular, you're going to have to apply some strategies to help you separate your subject from the background. In here, 
not a lot of distance between this heron and these bushes, so just not that much you can do. I think kind of the workflow here is slap on a little bit of an edit, then go to denoise. So if we zoom into the eye here and the eye here, you can see we're kind of getting a little bit, I think it's still loading. Yep. It was looking pretty plasticky before it loaded and it still does a little bit, but considerably smoothing out all that noise with that AI denoise applied. This is probably 50% or higher, probably closer to 75. When you zoom out though, it just kind of does a little bit of cleanup for the image generally. I think it makes... I think it makes the heron look just sharper and just this image a little bit better overall. One thing I like to do, you know, someone commented that they hadn't seen this before. So just to show it again, in the masking um, area of the sharpening detail tab, if you hold option, you can kind of get that mask of what exactly is being sharpened. And I think this starts by default at, I don't know, something low. You don't want that. You don't want to sharpen all this stuff. Like in this instance, I forget where this was set originally, 88. So I don't, I just kind of want that focus band sharpened here and, you know, seeing some of those lines on the heron. That's something that I would use Denoise AI for. And like, again, use that pretty heavily with the selects in this catalog. So again, kind of slapping on a base edit here, you know, fighting for light here at the end of the night, ISO 10,000, trying to keep fast enough at one over 320th of a second, applying the base edit. And then if we zoom in, you know, gonna slap that denoise on as it loads just to get a little bit cleaner of an image here. Again, probably overdoing this, probably too much at full res. If you're gonna be able to look, if you're gonna be able to peek, I usually export these as long edge 20, 25 pixels, PNGs. I think this adds to the photo instead of subtracting from it. But, you know, that noise doesn't look horrible, I would say. Um, and certainly you could probably press this a little higher to 12,800. At 12,800, at the end of the day, when you're already desperately fighting for some light and, you know, ideally you'd have this shutter higher in case this heron does any sudden moving, makes any sudden movements, you know, this should be, if I were able to get this exposure better, like this image probably turns out a little bit better if I hit this at 12,800 in this instance. That's about all I have in terms of examples of how I use this. Real world, how often, um, you know, what I'm worried about. I'm not super worried about these types of tools coming to photography. I think they just accentuate and help photographers do the same things that we've always done in terms of manipulating images, with the exception of obviously bringing in generative objects that weren't there, generative, you know, fake mountains, uh, fake rivers, that kind of thing. I'm not gonna judge people for that. It's not the thing that I really want to pull in with generative AI. I wanna use it as a tool to speed up the workflow that I've already kind of put in place that, um, you know, to minimize distractions, to isolate subjects, to give your eye a place to focus on. So that's how I've used it. That's how I'll continue to use it. I probably won't go crazy with the generative art, uh, but very curious to hear kind of how you approach this, how you think about this, what you're excited about in the future and what you're worried about. I, for one, am really excited about systems that allow us to quickly and easily see what was manipulated on images on any given platform. And that's about all the time I have. I think I'm about to lose this camera. Catch you in the next one.